Welcome to all the Star Trek and sci-fi fans out there. Welcome everyone to episode 75 of the Treks in Sci-Fi podcast. I'm your host Rico and it is today, Sunday, September 24th, 2006. As usual, this week we're going to be looking at a Star Trek episode from the original series. We've got a book review from a fan that he sent in. Uh, we've got some collectible talk and information and just some general announcements, so stand by. And I thought what I'd do this week first is I'm going to play a preview of the Star Trek episode that we're going to be reviewing. So here we go with that. Sir, contact with an object. It's moving toward us. Captain's log, stardate 1512.2. The Enterprise and crew are held captive by a strange alien vessel. Base of maneuvers, Mr. Sulu. Object change direction too, sir. Keeps coming at us. It's blocking the way. Regretfully, your ship must be destroyed. We grant you one minute. What are you all out of your minds? End of watch. It's the end of everything. What are you, robots? Wound up toy soldiers. Don't you know when you're dying? No time for you, you Theories are quite philosophies. I intend to challenge your actions and my medical records. I'll state that I warned you about Bailey's condition. Now that's no bluff. Anytime you can bluff me, Doctor. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Well, hello again, everyone, and thank you for joining me on Trex in Sci-Fi. This is Rico, of course, and I'll be your host as usual for the show. It's been a good week this past week for me. I've been catching up on some things, getting kind of ahead a little bit on other items. Uh, work uh, has been a little busy. Actually, uh, I might as well announce it here. It looks like I might have to head back to Taiwan for a week and very soon in maybe about uh, two weeks. I'm not sure if that's going to affect the podcast at all. Probably not, I hope, and I'm not for sure yet or positive that I'll be going, so I just wanted to mention that uh which will be kind of uh, kind of good. It's since I've been there before now, I know kind of what to expect. So that'll be an interesting uh, time. Just a few uh, discussion topics, announcements, chit chat here before we get rolling into uh, our Star Trek episode, which you heard the preview for, which is going to be a look at the Corbomite maneuver, which is from, of course, the first season, very early in the first season of Star Trek, uh, the original series. We'll be getting to that shortly. Got a few other things to talk about. The first is just uh, a general update on the T-shirts. The company is uh, in the process of making those for those that have ordered them. I should get those, I would guess, maybe in the next week or so, I hope. They should be coming in. According to uh, when I just looked it up online to, uh, this morning, It's uh, being they're being processed now, whatever that means. It's I guess they're printing them out, and then they'll ship them, and we'll ship them then to you. So... Probably a couple more weeks before you'll have them in your hands, approximately. Hopefully, uh, that won't be too much longer to wait for you. Let's talk about some uh, general uh, sci-fi news and announcements. Uh, The first being uh, the show Doctor Who, the more recent incarnation of this, the second season uh, of the recent uh, revival of Doctor Who from uh, England, Great Britain, is going to start up on the Sci-Fi Channel in the States this coming Friday night. So if you get the Sci-Fi Channel in the States, uh, tune into uh, Doctor Who. I have actually had a chance to already see this season. Don't ask how. Uh, But uh, it is fantastic. I I really, really enjoy Doctor Who, both the season prior to this one and and the one that's coming up. And since they just did the sort of mid-season finales of Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis this past Friday on Sci-Fi. This will kind of tie people over until more Stargate shows up. And of course, Battlestar Galactica will be returning uh, on October 6th, which will be is a a week from this coming Friday. So a little less than two weeks for Battlestar to be back along with Doctor Who on Friday night. So some great Sci-Fi coming uh, coming our way uh, every week from the Sci-Fi channel. I wanted to mention I have uh, on the treksf.com uh, forums, I there's a members-only area there. So if you're not a member and you're listening to the podcast, you might want to join up because there is a contest in the members-only section now on the forums 
that only uh, contest members can enter and win. And I, uh, you know, trying to drum up, I guess, a little bit uh, more interest in the forums. There, there's quite a good group there now, and we have some very interesting discussions about Trek and sci-fi and collectibles. So if you're uh, listening to the show and you'd like to participate a little bit more, maybe join up on the forums. Just go to Trust. Tr- ah, excuse me. Trek treksf.com or treksinsci-fi.com and check out the forums there. Now next up, I have a book review that Joby from the forums, which I was just talking about, the forums, not Joby, but Joby uh, was was nice enough to record a little audio review of a Star Trek book, and I am going to play that for you now. It's about, I think it's around three minutes long, so uh, take, uh, take a listen to what Joby has to say. Hi, Rico. Hi, Trex and Sci-Fi podcast listeners. This is Joby Drone from the Trex and Sci-Fi forums. A couple episodes back of uh, Trex and Sci-Fi, Rico reviewed the script for The Cage that he bought. It was released as part of Star Trek's 40th anniversary celebration. And he wasn't happy with it, but it got me thinking about a script that's in my collection that's really one of my favorite books in my book collection. It's Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of Forever, the original teleplay that became the classic Star Trek episode. Now, Harlan Ellison is a famous uh, sci-fi writer. He's written some of the best science fiction short stories ever written. Uh, He's been writing writing since the 50s and has had a pretty significant impact on the genre of science fiction. And uh, he wrote The City on the Edge of Forever, which is, of course, the classic episode where Kirk and Spock go back in time and they meet Edith Keeler in the 1930s and it's extremely dramatic and it's consistently ranked one of the top favorite Star Trek episodes of all time. Um, Well, Harlan Ellison's version was a little bit different than the version that you probably remember. There was a lot of uh, uh, rewriting that had to go on by Gene Roddenberry and some other writers as well before it could be filmed. And the version that's in this book is the original version. And in my opinion, it's pretty much better, uh, if you can believe it. Um, You know, there are some things in there that you think maybe Kirk wouldn't do, or maybe Spock wouldn't do, but that's really a matter of opinion. And it's written so beautifully that any fan, I mean, I'm a big fan of the episode, any fan is going to be really fascinated reading this stuff. Um, It's so beautifully written, it's very poetic. Um, In this book, there's also a 75-page introductory essay that's a really fascinating read. It it covers the controversy that ensued because well, Harlan Ellison was not pleased with the changes that they made to a script, and he felt mistreated by Gene Roddenberry and the producers of Star Trek. Now, this was released in 1995, and the man still holds a grudge, so uh, he was pretty angry. And it and it shows uh, he's not very nice to Gene Roddenberry, and he doesn't have very nice things to say about Star Trek in general. So you want to take that with a grain of salt. But it's a really interesting look some backstage stuff I'd never heard of before I read this uh, about stuff that went on behind the scenes in the 60s uh, when Star Trek was first being produced. There's also a bunch of really good afterwards by members of the cast about how they felt about uh, the episode. And Leonard Nimoy writes a really beautiful um, section. I just want to read this one part to you. It says, uh, I remember well the day I read the draft of the script submitted by Harlan Ellison. I found myself holding my breath and turning pages without knowing it as this wonderful story unfolded. Some Star Trek scripts were actually unreadable. Harlan's was unstoppable. You couldn't put it down. No matter what happened later, the unalterable fact is Harlan Ellison delivered a piece that had creative love pouring out of every page. So if that doesn't get you to want to pick this up, I don't think anything will. Um... I think Leonard Nimoy said it best right there. Now, it's available on Amazon. Last I checked, there was 14 or 15 copies out there. You can get it pretty cheap. Uh, It's a paperback book, though, so you want to be careful. If you spend too little money, you might get a damaged copy or something like that. I just want to thank Rico for letting me do this. Uh, uh, It's really been my pleasure to present this to you, and I want to encourage all of you to do this, too. It's very easy, and I'd love to get some ideas on some stuff that might be cool to read that I've never read. So, uh, back to you, Rico. Thanks again. Take it easy, everybody. Bye now. 
Well, thank you, Joby. That was that was excellent. Did an excellent job on uh, on that book, uh, the Harlan Ellison original screenplay of City on the Edge Forever. And of course, being the big Star Trek geek fan that I am, uh, I look over at my bookshelf there, and it's sitting r- right there. I've uh, I've read it. It's been a while since I read it. Like you said, it came out in the mid '90s, and it is definitely uh, a much. Uh, I think I would say that the story that he had originally written was a little more detailed, a little richer, a little more involved. And I think a lot of the things they had to change were due to the nature and aspects of, of TV. There are some more major changes, but I'm not going to say too much more. You did a great job, Joby. I, I definitely encourage any Star Trek fan out there listening to pick up that. If you've never read the original story screenplay that Harlan wrote for this episode and I've seen Harlan Ellison at, at a couple of conventions and he's a you know even when he was a little younger he's a, a can, cantankerous guy and, and he's even now even more so a cantankerous old guy and he definitely was not pleased with how they changed his script and he's he has a bit of a reputation in, in the world and in, in, in literature and both He's written uh, different scripts and movies and television episodes, and he does not take too kindly to those who change his work. So, I, again, great job, Joby. And I, I, like you said at the end of your uh, your audio there, I definitely encourage anyone else if you've got a uh, you know a book you've read, a movie, a TV show, anything you'd like to comment on, sci-fi, Star Trek related or otherwise, please send it into treksf at gmail and I will put it on the podcast. How are you doing tonight? What is Jawbone? Welcome to Jawbone. Uh, this is going to be kind of a laid-back show. Sometimes you just open up the mic, you don't really know what to say. i got a couple of things I can throw your way. I always prepare. I try to be prepared. The BBC calls Jawbone the podcast Jerry Seinfeld would have made had he settled down in Cleveland with five children. I smell like kielbasa. Or like a ham sandwich. Hey, what's up with the foreigners? Witty. Funny, hilarious, says the guy reading this promo. Down with Adam Chicken Curry. Where is it a Sasquatch or is it more of a skunk ink? Did I dial 911? <laughs> I meant to dial 911. Hang on, let me hang up. It's like eavesdropping on your neighbor, says Lynn and Nora's neighbor. Because we weren't talking about racy topics. Oh, yes, like right. Like all married people do. I just can't even talk to a married person who isn't talking about something racy. From the streets of Cleveland comes Jawbone Radio with Lynn and Nora. <laughs> Listen in at jawboneradio.com. And find out what is Jawbone anyway. Yeah, it's kicking, it's rocking, it's, uh, you know, stick it in your ear and listen to it. Okay, today's Star Trek episode commentary, analysis, discussion uh, is going to be uh, one of my favorite. And, and again, I, I think I, f- I feel like I say that almost every episode that I review about Star Trek, especially those from the original series, but this is truly truly one of the uh, probably in the top 10 of my favorites which i was looking back uh, a couple of days ago at all the star trek episodes that i've looked at and reviewed from all the various series and it kind of just shocked me that i hadn't covered the corbomite maneuver yet this being uh, like i said one of my all-time favorite episodes so i said i gotta cover this one and uh, that's what we're gonna do here right now uh, give you a little bit of background on this episode before we get into the heart of it and 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 audio and all that good stuff like I usually do. I'm going to just do the audio clip type review, not not a full uh, audio commentary like I've done. I, I really kind of prefer that method. It gives me a chance to analyze and discuss the episode a little bit more. I will do some full audio in the future, but this week I've got about 10 clips I'll be playing f- throughout my discussion. So let's get started here. The, uh, the Carbomite Maneuver. Now, first off, everyone has to realize that if you don't count the first original Star Trek pilot, the cage, and the second one where no man has gone before, the Corbomite Maneuver was the first episode of the regular series that was filmed. This was uh, in the production order, really, number three. If you count the cage, then where no man has gone before, the next episode being the Corbomite Maneuver. So even though the first episode broadcast on television was an episode called The Man Trap, which was the one uh, that we kind of just celebrated the 40th anniversary of the premiere of that, the Corbomite Maneuver was actually the next uh, or the first of the series episodes filmed officially after the pilot episode. So keep that in mind when we're discussing this and, and when you look at this episode. 
there's quite a bit of, uh, in this episode that's a little bit fresh and new. Uh, first off, the, the look of the episode is a little different. The uniforms, uh, Lieutenant Uhura on the bridge is wearing a gold uniform where she normally wears red. The collars on the uniforms are a little different. The, uh, the, the look is just a little bit off and different from what you get used to as the first season of Star Trek goes on. So that's an interesting uh, take. The, uh, the episode itself was written by a guy named Jerry Saul. He wrote a couple other episodes for Star Trek. Uh, this Side of Paradise, which I've talked about uh, quite a while back, but another great episode. And another one called Whom, Whom Gods Destroy from the, the later season, uh, season three of Star Trek. So he's got some uh, a couple of uh, really good episodes. Whom Gods Destroy, I was, eh, that's kind of so-so in my book. But uh, This Side of Paradise and The Corbomite Maneuver, two really top Star Trek episodes. It was directed by Joseph Sargent. Uh, figure, uh, it features mainly uh, most of the main cast with uh, a couple of guest stars. The main one being uh, this Lieutenant Bailey, uh, the navigator on the bridge uh, during the episode. And he plays a, a pretty key role in this episode, as we'll uh, see as I go on with the audio and the discussion in this episode. There are some interesting camera angles in this episode, some real neat effects, and, and a lot of things that are, are, are very unique to it. The music is great, I feel. They, they really uh, really put together a solid piece of television in this 50-minute uh, or so episode uh, called The Corbomite Maneuver. And, of course, you've got the, the character uh, or the, uh, the young Clint Howard at the end of the episode, which, uh, which is great, which we'll talk about when we get to that point more. Uh, let's. Uh, I think what we'll do now is l- let's get into the uh, audio, and I'll get through uh, the. They're starting up the discussion of the episode uh, proper. Let's just say, the episode starts out with uh, the Enterprise encounters this uh, small object, sort of a space buoy uh, type thing that is at least what they think it is. In in um, in their patrols, they're doing a lot of star mapping at, at this point in time, and the first clip actually that I want to play for you is a, a, a clip of Kirk uh, contacting the bridge. He's down in sickbay, actually, getting a physical from uh, Dr. McCoy. This uh, being the first filmed episode is the first episode, actually, that DeForest Kelly, Dr. McCoy, shows up in. Remember, in, in Where No Man Has Gone Before, uh, it's a different doctor in that one. Dr. McCoy is not in that episode. So this is the first time you see Dr. McCoy, uh, or at least the first filmed episode with him. And he's a little, just a little more... Uh, I don't know, a little different than he is maybe later on. He doesn't quite have his southern charm down quite in this one. And this first clip I wanted to play I think is pretty interesting with him and Kirk uh, McCoy trying to get a physical in for the captain who's obviously always very busy with things. So let's play that for you now. Kirk here, what's going on? Have a look at this, Captain. that undetermined whatever it is it's blocking our way when we move it moves as well vessel of some kind negative or some type of device they run up you can see the alarm lights flashing from there mccoy why didn't you tell me finally finished physical on you didn't i what am i a doctor or a moon shuttle conductor i jumped every time a light came on around here i'd end up talking to myself yeah it's a good scene there the interesting thing I find about that when I see it again is is Kirk just grabs his shirt, kind of flings it on his back, and grabs his boots and heads out the door down the corridor, you know, half-dripping, sweaty, bare-chested William Shatner uh, through the corridors on the Enterprise. So, the, the, the you know, throughout Star Trek, uh, Kirk had a little bit of a tendency to, to lose his shirt or part of his shirt in, in a number of episodes. It became... Uh, or has become maybe uh, a bit of a, a joke over the years. And this is a, a prime example of, of that in Star Trek. So he first hops in the turbo lift, decides to, uh, yeah, he, he contacts Spock again, decides that the threat's not too grave and he can swing by his quarters at least and, and get dressed uh, before he hops up. Because uh, at first he's going to run up to the bridge, you know, half, uh, half naked, <laughs> which is kind of funny, I think. But anyway... Uh, let's go on. The um, like I said, the uh, the character of Bailey in the navigator position. If you remember, uh, Chekhov doesn't really show up in Star Trek until the second season. So the navigator spot on the bridge next to Sulu 
was kind of a, a revolving chair. You know, each week they'd have kind of a different character in there. And in this episode, uh, you have Lieutenant Bailey uh, in that spot. And he's uh, he's a little young. He's a little naive. He's not nearly as seasoned as the rest of the bridge crew. And that comes out in, in various uh, different scenes and aspects in this episode. The next clip that I want to play for you, this uh, space buoy that, uh, or, or object in space that is blocking the Enterprise's path, they've tried to pull away, they've tried to go around it, it follows them, it, it, it doesn't move, it, or at least it, it moves with them, it stays with them, and eventually it starts to emit sort of this radiation that is uh, dangerous, so it gets a little too close, a little too much uh, radiation coming off of it, and Kirk has to destroy it, so the next clip is that situation and scene for uh, that incident. So listen to that. Phaser crew, stand ready. Phaser crew, reports ready, sir. Growing, we can take only a few more seconds of this. Lock phases on target. Mr. Bailey, lock phases. Faces locked. On target, sir. Point blank range and closing. Fire main faces! I really like the the effects in this episode. I, I'm really curious when they get around to changing this and or whatever the uh, they're calling the enhanced the things they're doing with the original series episodes. What, how this one will end up looking if they're going to change this this space buoy thing, uh, this cube that's kind of hanging in space, very uh, different. And I, I thought it was a real interesting. The guy that works on that stuff worked on a lot of the props and, and ship effects. For the original series, Wang Chung, I'm sorry, Wa Chang is his name, W-A-H Chang, worked on all these things. And I just think there's something really unique and interesting about the simplicity of this cube stopping them and that it's not this real fancy ship you'd get these days if they did it in CG or whatever. So I like that a lot. And you could hear in that clip, uh, Bailey kind of hesitates on, on shooting the object and locking the phasers and... It causes him some grief and some trouble throughout this episode. He's he's just uh, well, he's he's not uh, quite up to the challenge rate at the at the beginning of this episode, at least for being in the position that he's at a a, a key spot on the bridge in the navigator seat. So that's uh, that's one of the good things about this. And and the other thing I, I wanted to mention, I think I already did a little. The the music in this, uh, Fred Steiner worked on a lot of the early Star Trek music. Was the composer here and. A lot of these musical cues and themes that you hear throughout uh, the Corbomite Maneuver are used uh, over uh, throughout uh, a lot of the other early episodes of Star Trek in, in different episodes, and a little bit more here and a little bit more or a little less in other places, and, and additional uh, music, of course. Alexander Courage, uh, his Star Trek theme uh, figure, figures pretty heavily here, and it's really, really a great use of music. I've always said... Uh, I think maybe I even need to, uh, maybe I've said it before, I need to do a podcast just on Star Trek music. I think that would be uh, a lot of fun to do throughout the series, the various series and the movies. Because I, I, I think just like the Star Wars films, and we'll go off on a little tangent here just for a sec, uh, I think this, the music in Star Trek, especially the the Star Trek, uh, the original series, Next Generation, the later ones, is not as much maybe I, I felt. Uh, Next Generation, I think in the early seasons, they used music a lot more heavily than maybe even in the, some of the later ones. But uh, it, music, is it plays such an important role in creating the uh, the scene and the feel of it in in good TV and in good movies, at least for me. It, it means a lot, and I've always uh, enjoyed, uh, I have a lot of soundtracks from television and movies in my uh, CD collection, and I think it's real important to set the scene and the mood with music, and, and Star Trek is uh, is really good at doing that, especially the original series, at least in my uh, my opinion. So, where are we at? Uh, the next scene. There is a scene here shortly after they destroy this object where uh, I think it's, a, it's an interesting one because it shows a little bit of how Kirk and Spock work together. There's a scene with uh, 
Kirk and Spock on the bridge discussing uh, kind of what to do next and Kirk being the the captain, but he's always consulting Spock, of course, over throughout uh, Star Trek uh, and and many episodes. Uh, he's his, uh, you know, he's his right-hand man. He's his first officer. So uh, it, listen to the exchange and, and you know what I'm talking about. Logically, we'll discover the intelligence which sent out the cube. Intelligence different from ours or superior? Probably both. And if you're asking the logical decision to make... No, I'm not. The mission of the Enterprise is to seek out and contact alien life. Has it occurred to you that there's a certain inefficiency in constantly questioning me on things you've already made up your mind about? It gives me emotional security. Yeah, you can see he, uh, you know, Kirk and Spock uh, work well together, of course, a good team. Uh, along with McCoy, who also is going to counsel uh, Kirk a little bit here in a second that I'll play. Uh, it's, uh, you know, William Shatner, Captain Kirk, he always uh, would, would do those kind of things for Spock. He'd talk over things. And I, and I find myself do it sometimes in life where you are you talk to somebody, you're, you're more or less just talking out what you want to do and, and, and you're thinking about rather than really looking for them to tell you what to do, you are sort of verbalizing and saying it to to get it out in the open, to, to kind of figure things out, talking it out, rather than sitting in a room and, and kind of talking to the wall or talking to yourself. Uh, sometimes hearing it out loud helps you uh, make the decision a little bit more uh, than just thinking about it. So uh, that's uh, maybe a little deeper than I wanted to go on an early Sunday morning. But, hey, you know what? This is Star Trek, and this is uh, – this is uh, good stuff, and it, 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 it's good to think about sometimes. So anyway, let's, uh, let's move on, as I usually say. The, in the next clip, which I just talked about, is going to be a scene with, with Kirk and McCoy. Uh, a conflict that goes on throughout this episode, throughout the Corbomite Maneuver, is the, the character of Bailey. And uh, McCoy uh, is he's having some issues with the fact that uh, Kirk put him in the spot that he did and promoted him up onto the bridge and... Well, this scene uh, tells you all what's, um, what am I from the South now? Tells you all everything that Dr. McCall is thinking about. So I'll play that for you right now. Men are tired. Captain's quarters. Aren't you the one that always says a little suffering is good for the soul? I never said that. This is the bridge. Prepare for simulated attack. I'm especially worried about Bailey. Navigator's position's rough enough. Season man. I think he'll cut it. Oh. I'm so sure. Because you spotted something you liked in him? Something familiar, like yourself, say, about uh, oh, 11 years ago? On the double, Deck 5. Give me a green light. My doctor, you've been reading your textbooks again? I don't need textbooks to know that you could have promoted him too fast. Listen to that voice. Condition alert. Battle stations. Yeah, well, uh, McCoy's referring to, uh, obviously, Kirk... Uh, uh, and I, I've got to do this sometimes. Somebody had suggested that uh, I do like sort of character profiles on on the main uh, cast or the main, uh, not really cast, but the the crew of uh, the Enterprise in the various Star Trek series, like a character profile about Captain Kirk, Spock, Doctor McCoy, and it definitely has been in the back of my mind a lot more lately. And I think I'm going to to try to tackle that sometime very soon. The, the thing that led me to talk about that or, or that I was thinking about is that, uh, you know, in Kirk's uh, history, he started out as a navigator. That was his first, um, well, not really his first, but that's that's really where he learned about command, about being on the bridge. Uh, that was his main, uh, you know, his, his role uh, when he was, uh, you know, a younger lieutenant and everything like that. So, like McCoy refers to it in this scene. He's saying you see some of uh, in Bailey of what you might have been like, you know, 10, 11 years ago, which is definitely true. And I think Kirk's point is that, you know, you you learn by by being challenged, by by having uh, obstacles being placed in front of you. Like he says in that scene, something like uh, a little suffering is good for the soul. In other words, you, you know, humans and this is an ongoing theme always throughout Star Trek is that. They they learn from uh, difficulties. You 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 strive. You you make. Uh, yeah, you you will, if everything was easy, basically is what I'm saying. It, you would never learn anything. It, it's it's 
when things are difficult, when you make mistakes, it's how you learn what what you learn, what works, what doesn't work. That that's how you do it. You know, even when you're a small child, that's that's how you learn how to walk, how to run, how to do things. And that's what I think Kirk is trying to do with Bailey here is put him in a situation where he is going to be a little challenged. Maybe yeah, he's going to make a few little mistakes, but that's how he's going to learn. You can't just learn everything about being on the bridge of a starship from a textbook is is what really what Kirk I think is thinking and, and sort of saying. So I, I think that's very important. And he he sees something in Bailey. He sees somebody that can rise to the challenge of the position he's put him in, and it it ends up of course by the end of this episode being true. So. I think uh, Kirk definitely has uh, some insight there. I'm going to need to get a drink here in a second, though. I'm starting to lose my voice, I feel like. But the uh, we'll go on to the next clip, and I will grab something to drink. The next clip, the uh, what happens after they destroy the buoy, of course, if you don't recall, another huge ship, uh, the Fisarius, shows up. Who is, or what is, com- that ship is commanded by somebody named Balok, Commander Balok, and he contacts the Enterprise and says, hey, you know what? You guys are in a lot of you're in a lot of trouble. You destroyed my little other little ship, my little buoy, and now I'm going to destroy you. And of course, that's not uh, that's not something Kirk or the crew, of the Enterprise, is too happy about. So, I'm going to play uh, the first transmission communication from Balok to the Enterprise for you now. What is it, Mister Bailey? A message coming over my navigation beam. Pick it up. Switching, sir. And trespassed into our star systems. This is Balok, commander of the flagship Viserius of the First Federation. Your vessel, obviously the product of a primitive and savage civilization, having ignored a warning buoy and having then destroyed it, has demonstrated your intention is not peaceful. We are now considering the disposition of your ship and the life aboard. Ship to ship. Hailing frequencies open, sir. This is the captain of the Enterprise speaking. The warning nature of your space buoy was unknown to us. Our vessel was blocked, and when we attempted to disengage... Exceptionally strong sensor probes everywhere. Our electrical systems, our engines. No further communication will be accepted. If there is the slightest hostile move, your vessel will be destroyed immediately. Yeah, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, Balak have a, a pretty intimidating voice? Uh, I don't know uh, for everyone listening if you recognize that voice. I'll give you a second or two. He was featured in another 1960s television series quite a bit. Uh, that uh, The voice of Balak there is Ted Cassidy, who played Lurch on The Addams Family. Yes, uh, the big, tall, uh, Frankenstein-looking guy on The Addams Family, Lurch, is the voice of Balak. And I, I think uh, it's, it's a perfect voice. He, he's trying to be intimidating. He's trying to be scary. And, and the voice is, is really good. And, of course, you've got that... Uh, Weird-looking, uh, big-headed guy on the view screen, Balok. There, showing uh, showing everyone in the Enterprise what he looks like, or at least what he is trying to make everyone think he looks like. Of course, we know otherwise for those that have seen this episode, which is, of course, everyone listening to the podcast today. I hope uh, it is. Uh, you know, it's all kind of a ruse, anyway. the The other comment I wanted to make that I, I didn't say yet was. This being kind of an early episode in Star Trek, you notice that the character, uh, uh, that Mr. Spock, uh, Leonard Nimoy, even though he's supposed to be pretty logical, pretty unemotional, there's a lot of scenes in this episode where where he raises his voice, he gets kind of excited, he, he kind of uh, makes a few attempts at humor even in this episode where there's a scene where Bailey says something like uh, he gets a little uh, over-emotional and... Bailey blames it on his adrenal gland, and Spock says something like, uh, "Well, that sounds kind of uh, inconvenient, Mister Bailey. If that if that's what makes you uh, you know lose control, maybe you should have that adrenal gland of yours removed." And kind of a deadpan humor uh, comment to him, but you know, there's just um, the character of Spock. I guess is just what I'm saying. He's not completely defined like he is in later episodes. He's he's a little more uh, raw, a little more emotional here than you normally see Spock. 
even though he he still comes through in the end and, and is still uh, always making the logical and sensible uh, recommendations to the captain and everyone else. So that's uh, that's that. Uh, let's see where are we at the um, the next clip. Of course, they're being threatened here to be destroyed by uh, Balok and the Viserys. They've uh, probed the Enterprise, probed its memory banks. Uh, they're concluding and saying to at least the Enterprise at this time that that they're a primitive race. They're they're hostile. They're they're out there shooting their phasers off everywhere, and it's like, hey, we're just going to blow you up. And they tell them they've got us, you know, so much time left. And and Bailey, the navigator, of course, he uh, he doesn't really take this too well. He's sitting on the bridge, and they're all sitting there waiting for, to be blown apart by this huge ship that's on their view screen. And, and Bailey kind of goes a little nuts and. The next scene here is is a classic classic scene in this episode where where that takes place. So listen to that. I don't understand this. Spock's wasting time. Everybody else just sitting around. Somebody's got to do something. You see, Bailey. What do they want from us? Let's find out what they want us they to want do. They want us to lose our heads. We've Bailey, only now. got eight minutes left. Seven minutes and 41 oh, seconds. He's doing a countdown. Practically in the watch. What are you all out of your minds? End of watch. It's the end of everything. What are you, robots? Wound up toy soldiers. Don't you know when you're dying? Watch and regulations and orders. What do they mean? Bailey, you're relieved. Escort him to his quarters, doctor. Yeah, great, uh, great job there by Bailey. Uh, I wanted to say that that uh, actor, his name is Anthony Call. I just did a quick search uh, online on IMDb. Looks like he played a lot on a uh, soap opera in the '90s uh, called, uh, or the '80s to the '90s, "One Life to Live." Uh, he's he's really good in, in this role of Bailey. He's really fresh and and uh, just he reacts like you know probably the average person would react under these kind of circumstances who wasn't. Uh, used to having all this uh, craziness around him and the fact that uh, somebody's about to blow you apart uh, is uh, not really comforting and I think it's a real natural reaction and uh, it comes out his his you know kind of lack of experience lack of uh, discipline on on the ship so it's uh, it's really good and I like it a lot the the thing that happens though which I don't think I have a really clip showing it so I wanted to mention it is is near the very end of the countdown, even though McCoy is escorted or escorts uh, Bailey off the bridge, Bailey does kind of pull himself together, comes back up to the bridge and asks, uh, asks, Cap- asks Captain Kirk, let's say that properly, asks Captain Kirk to resume his uh, his position, and Kirk says, okay, he's, uh, he, you know, he's, he's learning. That's what I was talking about earlier. He's learning what, uh, what it is to be on the bridge of a starship, so that's, that's important. Um, the the real uh, the, the where this episode gets its name from is is this next clip that I'm going to play for you, and this is a classic Kirk move. This is the beginning of of Kirk's history of defying the odds of of pulling things out of his let's just say uh, uh, bottom. Uh, <laughs> we'll keep this podcast clean. He uh, Kirk always has the ability to to defy the odds to you know something's an impossibility and, and he figures out a solution or or figures out something and he does the first of many Kirk bluffs in this situation about the uh, the namesake for the episode Corbomite which uh, he t- tells ba- Balok is uh, is something that's not quite in the the records uh, that he that Balak had searched and well let me play the scene for you and you know what I'm talking about. Great scene coming up. Here we go. This is the captain of the Enterprise. Our respect for other life forms requires that we give you this warning. There's one critical item of information that has never been incorporated into the memory banks of any Earth ship. Since the early years of space exploration, Earth vessels have had incorporated into them a substance known as corbomite. It is a material and a device which prevents attack on us. If any destructive energy touches our vessel, a reverse reaction of equal strength is created, destroying... You now have two 
minutes. Destroying the attacker. It may interest you to know that since the initial use of Corbomite more than two of our centuries ago, no attacking vessel has survived the attempt. Death has little meaning to us. If it has none to you, then attack us now. We grow annoyed at your foolishness. Yeah, that's that's a classic classic Kirk scene, isn't it? It's just um, classic Kirk there in Kirk mode of uh, he tells Spock something like uh, Spock mentions that in chess, you know, when when you're outmatched, the game is over, and the um, oh, there's my phone. Hang on a second. Okay, I'm back. I apologize for that. Uh, it was for my wife, anyway. You know, it's uh, it's like I said, every you know, a few times in the past, it's it's invariable that the phone rings when I sit down on a nice, quiet Sunday morning to podcast. It 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 probably won't ring the rest of the day now. So, <laughs> anyway, sorry. What the, the um the point I was trying to make there earlier was, you know, Spock says when when in chess, you're if you're outmatched, the game's over. Well, Kirk realizes, and he gets a little hint from Dr. McCoy also, that that's not true in all games. And, and the, the classic game that that's not true in is poker, that even if your cards are much weaker than your opponent's, if you can bluff them to thinking you have a, a superior hand, or in this case, uh, Kirk's trying to bluff Balak with that they have, in a way, a uh, sort of a, well, if you destroy us, we'll destroy you too. You're gonna, We're going to take you with us. So he's bluffing Balak, and that, of course, is uh, is trying to uh, kind of even the odds. And and there's uh, there's always another possibility. Kirk uh, always says and thinks, and so does Spock. So and it works. Uh, Balak's kind of bluffed, and he decides that instead of destroying the Enterprise, that they will be dragged back by a little small scout ship, or it appears to be that that comes uh, away from the Fasarius and pulls the Enterprise towards their uh, their home base. And they, um, I'm not going to play a lot of that because that's it's mostly ship stuff and effects and things that don't come across real well on audio, I think. But eventually uh, the Enterprise pulls away from this small scout ship. They, disguise, they, they start, to, start to think the ship isn't powerful enough to really pull them and stop them. And it's true that the Enterprise uses its engines and its warp power to, to shear away, to pull away from the, the small scout ship. And what happens after that, though, and, and this is all really probably one big setup from, uh, on Balok's part, the, uh, the scout ship appears to be heavily damaged and, and it's hurt from this, you know, tractor beam kind of failing and the Enterprise pulling away. It, it's appearing on the sensors that there's something wrong. Well, Kirk decides to take a small team over to investigate, say, and uh, the next uh, clip I have to play here is is why he's made that decision, and I think it's uh, another important uh, point, so I'll play that now. It's no, sir. Jim, don't you think... What's the mission of this vessel, Doctor? To seek out and contact alien life and an opportunity to demonstrate what our high-sounding words mean. Any questions? I'll take two men with me. Dr. McCoy to examine and treat the aliens if necessary. And you, Mr. Bailey. Sir? The face of the unknown. I think I owe you a look at it. Yes, sir. Captain, request permission to... Denied. If I'm wrong, if it's a trap, I want you here. So there, Kirk is uh, again giving Bailey the opportunity to learn about the unknown, learn about aliens, and to to hopefully um, you know get some experience under his belt. And it's it's important, you know, you um, you know from uh, or it's it's sort of eh, throw throughout the series found out that that Kirk uh, his his captain uh, Garavik was one of them, Captain Garavik when he was a young lieutenant and. It was sort of he had this a same situation where the captain had kind of taken Kirk under his wing because he saw a lot of potential in him to to train him to educate him to to give him these opportunities and experiences that would would help him 
become the you know the man and the captain that he ends up becoming in Starfleet and that's uh you know that's I think a lot of times that's how people gain you know or get to the point that they are at it's not just because they want it it's because other people have and other opportunities and things and other people have given them those opportunities to to do what they want to do it's it's always a, com- a combination of things that allows you to do do what you'd like so um I think that's all I wanted to say on that. The The last clip that I've got to play, this kind of wraps up the episode. It's the, the end, of course, scene with uh, Balok, Bailey, McCoy, and Kirk all over on, on the small ship. And they meet uh, they meet the real Balok, who is Clint Howard. <laughs> He's uh, little little Clint Howard in this weird makeup, bald, drinking Tranya, having a good old time with, with everyone. And uh, I think it's, it, it's really perfect. I, I really... You know, it's it's hard for me to imagine. I've seen this episode so many times. You know, the first time you would have seen this, how shocked you would have been that they don't beam over and see, see these weird aliens like they had seen on the view screen all along. They see this little bald kid sitting in a silver uh, little outfit uh, on a bed drinking orange juice or whatever. So it's, uh, I, I really like that. I, I like the fact that aliens don't have to be these weird, scary, bug-eyed looking creatures that they could look very innocent, very... You know, childlike. There are a lot of episodes of Star Trek in in the early series where the aliens are like that. Uh, I think it was sort of Gene Roddenberry's idea that that aliens wouldn't necessarily be you know monsters. That they could be very innocent, very uh, you know just very nice looking, not scary at all. And you know until uh, until Star Trek came along, a lot of the early you know sci fi movies of the fifties and so on, you know the aliens were these you know mutants and monsters that would take the you know always were after the women on Earth. They'd carry them off, and then the big scientist you know hero guy would have to go rescue them or whatever. But uh, Star Trek tried to break that uh, mold a bit, and and this is a good example of that. So let me play that last clip for you. It's a couple minutes long, but I, I think it's important. It wraps up the episode real well. And, and I'll come back and give you some final thoughts. Commander, that puppet. My alter ego, so to speak. In your culture, he would be Mr. High to my Jekyll. You must admit he's effective. You would never have been frightened by me. And I thought my distress signal quite clever. It was a pleasure testing you. Testing us? I see. I had to discover your real intentions. But you probed our memory banks. Your records could have been a deception on your part. And your crew? (laughs) I have no crew, Doctor. I run everything. This entire complex from this small ship. But I miss company. Conversation. Even an alien would be welcome. Perhaps one of your men. For some period of time, an exchange of information, cultures. Yes, both our cultures would benefit. Do you know where we can find a volunteer, Mr. Bailey? Me, sir, I'd like to volunteer. Ah, you represent Earth's best, then. No, sir, I'm not. I'll make plenty of mistakes. But you'd find out more about us that way. And I'd get a better officer in return. (laughs) I see. We think much alike, Captain. You and I. Now, before I bring back the Fasarius, let me show you my vessel. It is not often I have this pleasure. Yes, we're very much alike, Captain. Both proud of our ships. Yeah, isn't that... uh, That's just a great episode. I I definitely... If you haven't seen it in a while, as I, I've said many times in the past, grab the DVDs, watch them on television, you know, record them on your TiVo, whatever. But uh, the Corbomite Maneuver, classic, classic Star Trek from the first early first season of the original series. Uh, I really, really enjoyed 
talking about and in, in looking back at this episode again just has so many uh, classic Star Trek moments and elements in it. Uh, really set the stage for the series, I think, uh, for uh, a lot of things to come in the future. So I'm going to take a quick break and come back with some uh, collectible talk, a contest announcement, and some other news. So stand by. I'll be right back. One last thing, I, uh, I'm back, of course. Uh, one last thing I forgot to mention about that that episode. The end, I wanted to mention the, the voice that was dubbed in for Clint Howard, that was obviously not Clint's voice that they used, is uh, a guy named Vic Perrin. And he's uh, pretty famous in sci-fi circles because he was the control voice at the beginning of the old 1960s Outer Limits television show, you know, the one that would say, we, we're in control of your picture, you know, we control the horizontal and all that stuff. He was the control voice for that show, although I think his voice is not um, is a little different in this uh, in, in the Corbo might maneuver than on Outer Limits. But I wanted to mention that same guy, Vic Perrin. So a couple of famous sci-fi voices in this episode that I looked at: uh, Ted Cassidy, Adam's Family, and Vic Perrin. So the uh, the collectible. Uh, what I've got uh, to talk about this week is. Um, there's a series of items uh, or a line of things that are out both for Star Wars and Star Trek. Uh, they're called mini busts. They're basically about, uh, I'd say, in you know five or so, five or six inches high, roughly, approximately. They're basically a uh, a half a statue is what they are. They're 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 the upper half, the upper half and torso and head and everything of a particular character, usually. They're doing a lot of these by uh, a company named Gentle Giant for Star Wars items are doing quite a big series of these. I've never really collected a lot of the mini busts. I, I've preferred like full statues for uh, both Star Wars collecting, uh, Star Trek items, and in other areas. I've uh, I've always liked the full look better than the, the mini busts. But there was one uh, in particular this past summer that got me interested and. Uh, there's a character in Star Wars uh, that uh, her name is Mara Jade, and she shows up in some of the ex- expanded universe titles in Star Wars. She ends up being the uh, future, or in the future, she ends up being the wife of Luke Skywalker. That's her character in the books. She's never, of course, shown in the movies or anything like that, but she's uh, she's fairly uh, uh, big in the in these expanded universe titles and these stories that they've written. And there's a the company Gentle Giant put out a mini bust of Mara Jade uh, over this past summer. She was actually uh, uh, released at Gen Con. It was they did uh, Gentle Giant did some exclusives over the summer at different conventions around the country, and the, the Mara Jade bust was the mini bust was released at Gen Con. And I actually found on the prop forum that I am a member of there was a, there's an area there where people sell items, and there was a guy that was selling one pretty much at cost and these are going on ebay fairly uh high uh at least uh the last time i looked a lot more than they were originally like two and three times original cost so that's a nice thing about forums and things like that 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 people are you know they're not quite so greedy so you can get things uh a, a little better price and people are nice about it they know they're going to a true fan somebody who will really appreciate it so i i picked it up i i told them uh I said I'd buy it, and he shipped it out to me, and I, I really like it. I'm going to put some pictures, of course, up in the collection gallery and in the podcast notes for this week of this item. Like I said, it's uh, eh, maybe five, six inches uh, tall. It's just there, you know, from her mid uh, part of her to the upper body, the head. She's holding a lightsaber because uh, Mara has some, some Jedi abilities, Jedi skills. I'm not going to go into a whole history of her character. There's plenty of other shows and podcasts and and books out there that tells you all about Mara, but uh, she's uh, they did a really good job with this. She's sort of in an action kind of pose. It's hard to describe her. She's kind of turned with one hand up, holding a, a lightsaber in, in her other hand, and it, it's it's a really nice piece. I, I really like it. It was only around $50 approximately uh, with shipping and everything, so I think they did a good job on this. I'd love to have a full-size statue of her character because I find her character really interesting. And I think that would be great. But they haven't, as far as I know at least, maybe somebody could correct me, at least on this, in this full-size statue line, like a 12-inch uh, 
size figure. I don't know if they've done that, even a uh, just a regular figure. I'm not sure that they've put one out. They they have, of course, done a small, like, three-and-three-quarter-inch uh, Hasbro, like, action figure of her before, but nothing in, in statue size. So uh, I, I'm sure that'll happen eventually someday. Gentle Giant is putting out a lot of really, really nice, if you're into Star Wars, they're putting out a really great line of statues at a reasonable price. I've got a couple of them, and, and I really like them quite a bit. They're they're putting out a lot more than I, I really uh, can afford or or have space to store. So, uh, hey, Gentle Giant, slow down a little bit, okay? Anyway, uh, so that's the Mara Jade bust. Uh, Gentle Giant, really nice piece. I'm sure you can find one still out there. And I think prices will come down for these. I, I, I don't think I'd, they'd pay... Uh, the kind of inflated prices that sometimes show up on eBay. Wait a little while, and you could probably find one a little cheaper. So so that's it for my collectible discussion right now for this week. This show is part of the Out of This World Entertainment on the Sci-Fi Podcast Network, tsfpn.com. Okay, we have a contest to announce right now. The uh, This contest is going to be, uh, I think I'm going to go... I don't know. Well, let's let's go a week. Hopefully, we'll get enough entries in in the next week, and I will announce the winner on next week's next weekend Sunday podcast, and we'll we'll do that. the The item that you can win for this contest, I have a action figure of Doctor McCoy as he appeared in the pilot episode of The Next Generation. You know, old Doctor McCoy, where he was in that scene with Data. So I have an action figure. Uh, it's in pretty good shape. Uh, it's all sealed, still in the package, and everything. Uh, the contest, the, to win this contest, this is what you have to do. You need to send me uh, an email, treksf at gmail.com. Put contest in the subject uh, header so I can kind of filter those through. The, uh, the contest is, I want you to send me the names of two Constitution-class starships that were talked about in the original Star Trek series, and I want to have their registry numbers also. For example, the Enterprise is Enterprise NCC-1701. You need to name two other starships, two other Constitution-class starships, not just ships, but in, in in the fleet of ships that are like the Enterprise. You know, there were various episodes throughout Star Trek's original series where they ran into another starship that looked just like the Enterprise. I need two names of ships with their their number, their registry number, the NCC number for those ships for this contest. And the the people that send at least, you know, two accurate uh, bits of information, like I'm asking for that, uh, send me an email. And if I've got multiple, of course, entries for that, I will select a random one. So I think this one's pretty easy. There's a couple that are pretty easy to find. Uh, and, of course, you've got the wonders of Wikipedia, Star Trek.com, and all those other good things these days. To, to find this information out. So if you are interested in this McCoy figure, that's the contest. So send your entries in. Okay, uh, everyone, a couple last announcements, and then we're going to wrap up this podcast for this week. Uh, the first being uh, I am going to do a – there will be a Wednesday-released uh, episode uh, or podcast this uh, this coming Wednesday for Treks in Sci-Fi. It's going to be a complete, uh, fairly long fan focus segment on – Somebody that's on the forums, uh, her forum name is Christabel, her real name is Amy, and we had a great conversation over Skype yesterday that I recorded. She has a lot of uh, interesting Star Trek stories to uh, to tell everyone, so stay tuned for that. That'll be coming out this Wednesday. And next weekend's podcast, I am going to focus on the Deep Space Nine episode, Far Beyond the Stars. This is a great episode uh, with Cisco kind of... Back in the 1950s, uh, there's a lot of uh, things about prejudice and things like that in this episode. don't want to talk about it all. I have a lot more to say next week about this, but it's Deep Space Nine, Far Beyond the Stars, next week on Treks in Sci-Fi. And uh, until I talk to you next time, everyone have a great week, and thanks, of course, for listening. Oh, one last thing. September is almost over, and if you're enjoying the podcast... I'd really appreciate a vote on Podcast Alley. There are links all over the website for that that you can find. Or just go to Podcast Alley, type in Treks in Sci-Fi, and it should pop up. And, of course, the other place, iTunes. I'd love to see some reviews. There's some nice ones up there. And anyone, if you get a few minutes, if you use iTunes, pop a review up. I'd really appreciate it if you are enjoying the podcast. That's uh, that's always great to see those. So 
Again, until next time, everyone, have a great, safe uh, week and watch some new Enhanced Star Trek if it's playing in your area. This is Rico signing off for now, and everyone, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This has been a Rick Dosti production. This podcast, copyright 2006, all rights reserved.